Welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor. While lighting is not necessarily thought of as music typically taking center stage, it is an integral and a highly influential part of our overall process. Today, we're gonna to go a little off topic and discuss numerous applications of lighting from my panel members with the common denominator between us being that we've all had at least one toe, if not an entire foot in the disco New York City club scene of the late 70s and early 80s. I'd like to introduce in alphabetical order my esteemed guests, please. First, I have Mr. Ken Billington. Ken is an American lighting designer who began his career in New York City, working as an assistant to Theron Muser, known as the Dean of American Lighting Designers and considered one of its pioneers. From those humble beginnings, Ken has amassed, incredibly, over 100 Broadway and over 75 off-Broadway productions to his credit. Ken received a Tony Award for the best lighting design for the revival of Chicago in 1997, which also garnered him the Drama Desk Award for outstanding lighting design. Additionally, from 1979 to 2004, Ken was the principal lighting designer for Radio City Music Hall, where he created the world-famous Easter and Christmas shows. At Disneyland, Ken's lighting is featured in the Estravaganza Fantasmic, and his architectural designs can be seen in restaurants and clubs from Manhattan to Asia, which leads me into how Ken and I know each other, as he was responsible for the lighting design at the Red Parrot, a nightclub opened by Jimmy Murray New Year's Eve in 1990 in New York City, where I was one of the lighting directors from 1983 through its closing of 1988. In November of 2015, Ken was inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame, and Ken continues to be prolific, with his latest projects this past year, the lighting design for The Sound of the Silk Road, an original Mandarin language musical that had its world premiere at Shan China's Shanxi Grand Theater. Ken, forgive me on the pr pronunciation on that, please. You did fine, but the Red Parrot opened in 1980. You said 1990. Oh, I apologize. Yes, it was New Year's Eve, I believe, 1980. Yeah, it was. I have the invitation somewhere. I scanned the front and it's part of our photos later. My next esteemed guest is Mr. Paul Gregory. Paul is an American lighting designer and founder and president of the internationally renowned Focus Lighting, an architectural lighting design firm. Paul's resume includes regional theater as well, having been trained in, the theatric, in theatrical lighting at the Goodman Theater School, which is part of the Art Institute of Chicago and received an MFA from the Parsons School of Design in New York City. In 1975, Paul, along with his partner, Rick Spaulding, founded Light Lab Corporation, based in Buffalo and adding an office in Manhattan. Light Lab specialized in nightclub design. Their control equipment became the industry standard at that time. However, arguably, the illuminated dance floor from Saturday Night Fever became their most famous design. In 1985, Paul left Light Lab and founded Focus Lighting, an architectural lighting design firm based in New York City. Since its establishment, Focus Lighting has garnered numerous awards for outstanding achievements in architectural lighting design. Always pushing the envelope of what's possible, Paul's lighting designs have earned him an introduction into Architectural Lighting Magazine's Hall of Fame and Lighting Designer of the Year Award. Notable Focus projects include the New York Aquarium's Shark Exhibit, and the 100 and 101st anniversary edition of the New Year's Eve Times Square Ball. 
Our next guest, Mr. Jason Kantrowitz, is a New York City-based creative producer and lighting designer with a diverse background in experimental and immersive theater. After starting out in New York City designing musicals on Broadway and Radio City Music Hall, Jason has overseen creation and themed attractions and shows, including nighttime spectaculars, parades, fireworks shows, holiday attractions, ice shows, broadcast features, nightclubs, restaurants, and retail experiences. Jason just designed a Burning Man-inspired impressive production of Frank Wildhorde's Wonderland for the 2,000-seat outdoor Tukahan Amphitheater in Utah. And recently, he produced and directed Northern Lights, an award-winning outdoor ecological lake spectacular for the Philadelphia Zoo that Ken Billington designed the lighting for. Jason and I met back in the glory days of disco at the Red Parrot, which he worked on with Ken Billington. And last but certainly not least, our other female member, Anne Militello. Anne is an award-winning lighting designer whose career began in small theater and concert stages in both San Francisco and New York City. Early in her career in New York City, she worked extensively with off-off Broadway and experimental theater groups like La Mama, the New York Shakespeare Festival, and the Squat Theater and was awarded the prestigious Obie Award for Sustained Excellence in Lighting for Off-Off-Broadway and Off-Broadway Theater. Some of her more notable works include original productions with Sam Shepard, Maria Irene Fornes, and David Lynch. Ed has also designed touring concert productions for Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, Robert Plant, Katie Lang, and Pearl Jam, just to name a few. Her designs and architecture have also helped to change the complexion of our cities. She received the Paul Waterbury Award of Distinction for the new 42nd Street Studios in New York City. Over the years, Anne has also created many architectural and commissioned public art light designs. Most noteworthy is the large-scale light cycles commissioned by the Brookfield Properties for the World Financial Center, downtown New York City, a 150-foot-high moving light sculpture strung across the glass arch of the Winter Garden. Anne and I recently discovered we have a common history that stems from the late 70s, early 80s New York City club scene, where, mostly during my industry years, she ran lights at iconic places like Xenon, Studio 54, The Roxy, Danceteria, The Mud Club, the Ritz, and the Rock Lounge. I welcome you all. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be fun because we can talk about the glory days and then, more importantly, how those days helped influence us in our later expenditures in our career, how we've gone into different disciplines, each with our own type of expertises, and, and how that all fits into what we feel a heartbeat is. I think Paul beat all of us into the club world. Um, and uh, I, I got to it late in 1980. Uh, but Paul, you were there much earlier, weren't you? I was, I was writing down some, uh, some dates today. And uh, it was January 20th, uh, 1976, was the first Billboard Disco show in New York. And it was at the Roosevelt Hotel. And it was a, uh, I mean, Studio 54 didn't open until April of 77. Regines opened in 76. But there weren't a lot of clubs. There were a lot of little clubs, but there weren't any big, like, big clubs at that point in time. And uh, Billboard, the Billboard charts were a big deal. 
uh, Billboard magazine was a big deal for the industry. And they decided to have a show at the Roosevelt Hotel, which a little three-day trade show. Uh, and they hired uh, Disco Sound, the company that did the sound system in Paradise Garage and Regines and uh, the music plots in Berlin and the Coliseum in Tel Aviv and uh, Studio 54. And they ended up doing all the big sound systems. And they, they uh, uh, called them and asked if they'd consult, helped out. And they called me and said, could you bring a dance floor? And there were at that point in time neon dance floors and, and we had a dance floor that would work into patterns. Uh, you could bus all the neutrals together and switch the huts or bus the huts together and switch the neutrals. And you could make the dance floor go one way or, or go in a different pattern. So I brought a dance floor on top of a station wagon in, uh, in January of 76 from Chicago uh, where I had an office. We had an office in light lab office in Buffalo, New York, Boston, Chicago, and LA. And uh, brought it to New York, brought it into the Roosevelt Hotel and stacked it in the corner of the lobby because the loading dock was closed. And, uh, and then the next morning we took it out of the lobby and, and brought it in and set it up. And uh, Gloria Gaynor sang on it and Salsal Orchestra played behind it. And it was this incredible show. And, and then a couple of weeks later, four weeks later, a phone rings and, uh, and, uh, and this guy says, it's Robert Stigwood. Do you know who I am? I said, no, sir, I don't, I don't know. And he said, well, the Bee Gees record label has that RSO on the back. That's me. And I want to do a movie. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, heard about you from Disco Sound, Joe Zamore and Richard Long, uh, uh, and uh, said I should call you, and I did. And he came over and, and brought a bunch of uh, uh, dancers to see how they would look on the on their legs on that dance floor. And and, uh, and then we moved along and decided to go ahead with it. And then we didn't hear anything for a long time. And it was John Abelson, the guy who directed Rocky, was going to do uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Um, and uh, some disagreement happened. He left. John Badham, who did Rocky Horror Picture Show, showed up a couple of days before shooting. Um, Charles Bailey was the design director, uh, and the the show was a uh, uh, well, the show it wasn't thought to be a great hit when it was being filmed, uh, but it certainly changed all our lives. And here you have it. Yeah. the infamous poster from the movie that literally <laughs> rocked disco, I think more so than Donna Summer, and that's saying a lot for 1976. And, and here's a little side note looking at that picture. The white suit he's wearing was designed by Patrizia von Brandenstein, uh, an Academy Award-winning designer, uh, and she did this, and she bought it on a in a store on 42nd Street and totally altered it. Oh so, wow! And that changed uh, that changed costumes too. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Here's a couple more pics of the floor, um, Paul. I think these are just outtakes from the movie. Yes, Paul. Yes, yes. And our uh, my assistant, my office manager, is running the controls, which is right behind his knee in the back. <laughs> uh, Monty Rock. There's another the, view. Yeah. Let's go back to the controls. Yes, behind yeah. his. Knee. Oh, you can't. I don't think you can see. No, that you can't see on the it. screen. Yeah. What who was what was his name again, Paul? Monty Did Rock did, was did, the DJ in the movie 
who is also a big name DJ around town and, and, and would smoke dope during the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wasn't really unusual back then. No, no, it was not. <laughs> and we had somebody on staff out there with an extra heat sink with triax mounted and clip leads. So in case the dimmer failed, we could instantly have it back up and running because the cost of having it down was, it was not something that they would allow. Up at my house in New York, I still have a bag of spare parts. I have yep. tracks from when I worked for you at Light Lab, which was I probably 80, 81 for about yep. a year-ish. And um, and I also have a bunch of Aerolite spare parts from VL1s we had for right. Palladium. They're all set to be mobiles in my old age projects. Hey, Paul. Of controllers that I called off the website, which I alluded to in my introduction. And I would say easily 70% of the clubs that were built in the late 70s, early 80s had Light Lab controllers. This is an old one, uh, the 4000. It was really the relationship of sound to light. There were really two kinds of controllers. There were color organs like this that separated the low frequency, the medium, and the high. And then there were chasers. Uh, and we did eight-channel chasers and 10-channel and 16-channel. And then so, you added in, I forget what year, the push buttons on the 4001. So you now had the hit a button, get a light, which in all honesty... I like to think that that stems from my beloved lighting console at the Cockring on Christopher Street that was designed and built by Tommy Kazalka, and it was a converted Olivetti typewriter keyboard. There you go. Push <laughs> a button, get a light. And, you know, just maybe coincidence, maybe not. But when the 4001 first came out, I think that's when I first started working for you, Paul. And that's when separation happened between the control equipment and the drivers. Yes. And then we had the 8000. Right, right. Um, and this was used in so many clubs throughout the city, highlighting a few award-winning Ice Palace 57, which was another Jimmy Mary club, same as the Red Parrot. Paradise Garage had Light Lab controllers. The Saint had Light Lab controllers. And my first lighting design in the pavilion had Light Lab controllers. Right. You can see behind my shoulder. And then another view of two more that were in front of me when these folk, these were taken and they were kind of ubiquitous throughout the industry um you know yeah, that, that business card would really get you into any club in the world pretty much in, in the middle of italy off in the hills uh, uh that was a that, that control equipment made it worldwide hey now, uh, uh, paul history wise the dance floor um in saturday night fever was that a scenic piece that was put in or did the club buy it, it did it, what they what? rented it for the uh, uh maybe they bought it they bought it so it's we wouldn't, we wouldn't rent it it was 16 feet by 24 feet it was made up of uh uh roughly 16 inch on center um uh squares uh so it lined up to four by eight sheets of polypropylene we didn't use plexiglass because the polypropylene wouldn't, wouldn't show scratches and, and filter the light better. Uh, we would hand dip the light bulbs uh, and hang them in little nooses uh, so that the dot of, uh, there would be a little dot at the bottom which would stop the, the, the harshness uh, where it was the, the bulb was closer to the plastic. Um, and it was, yeah. That's what you call engineering. There was a lot that went on. 70s engineering. <laughs> 
Well, and those controllers you made, I'm sure there's probably some out there still working. Yes. Uh, that they were designed to be beat up. They weren't delicate instruments at they, all. And it was interesting because we put a flat wire connector, a ribbon cable between the, the, the logic and the power pack, the controller and the power pack uh, with connectors on it, pre-terminated. Pre so you just plugged it in because there's always 32 wires to connect and it was always at the last minute and the electrician would make a mistake and burn up the, the controller and the club wouldn't work. And okay. so we, we sort of would filter out as many problems as we could find. Right. When did the Red Parrot happen? Red Parrot was 1980 and we went with a controller. I think Marsha has a picture of it. I don't, I, I don't a, know if I have a picture of, a of legal, it was the Klegel, Klegel performer. Yeah. yeah. At the bar was the first club in New York that had digital wow. lighting. You know. In fact, I have a picture of you from back then, Ken. Yes. Oh. Wow. Oh, Isn't my. Great picture. What happened to my hair? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, like all of us, it changed color on us, didn't it? <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, at least you I do have a few pics. I don't, uh, I do have some pics that I'm going to scroll through as you talk about the Red Parrot, uh, Ken. Well, when we did the Red Parrot, uh, J Jimmy Mary, who was a very successful uh, club owner, mostly uh, gay clubs in New York uh, and Fire Island, and he always told me that he had a club in uh, Cherry Grove or the Pines. I don't remember which one. And yes, he no. put in some colored light bulbs, and there were like four light switches on the wall. And they would play the music. And he said in his gravelly voice, well, those queens love chasing the lights. So they would just come over and play with the light switches. And every week we replace the light switches because they broke. Um, but that was, you know, the beginning of uh, twinkling lights in uh, clubs. So when he did the Red Parrot, um, he wanted something different. He wanted to break the mold. Uh, at the time, Studio 54 was the hot club in New York, and the Red Parrot became the next thing. Uh, Jules Fisher, a brilliant theatrical designer, uh, did um, uh, Studio 54, I think with Paul Morantz, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Correct. Uh, and Jimmy came to me through Sam Lapata, the architect, and this was a city block warehouse. It went from 57th to 58th Street. And uh, I said, well, you know, I don't do disco lighting. I said, what I hate about the current club scene in that day <clears throat> was it was lots of UV light. So everybody showed their dandruff off beautifully. Um, and I said, it's we got to make the people look good. Why do people go to clubs? Yes, they go to dance, but they go to cruise and check everybody out because the Red Parrot wasn't a gay club. I think it had a gay night. Um, so with that in mind, um, I said, let's, how do we make the people attractive? Uh, and I put lights under the bar a fluorescence, I think in those days and, and wrapped them in a pink. That's so, the bar. 
Uh, so they were, oh, people were always uplit. So you could see somebody across the bar and they looked, they were in pink, they looked good. There was no UV to be found. The dance floor was very theatrical. Um, I used, um, uh, you know, um, God, I don't remember the little light bulb, light buds or something in those days to cover all the outline of the ceiling. I wanted to make it theatrical. I wanted to make the people look good. I never thought it should be dark. Um, uh, it should always have a look to it. So we had color um, color wheels on all the lights. Color scroller hadn't been invented yet. Automated lights hadn't been invented yet. I had follow spots when we wanted something to move. Um, I put in... Um, LMI dimmers. I think there was a rack of 96 and a rack of 48. Yep. Uh, and everything was programmed. It wasn't. We had that fabulous fiber optic display that was next to the bandstand also. Right. Oh, right. I forgot it about that. Wonderful. That was wonderful. And, and one thing you didn't mention, Ken, and this was the one thing that I think made the Red Parrot stand out. It wasn't just a nightclub. It wasn't just a disco. We had a live band. We had like a 40-piece orchestra, huh. Joe Kane and the Red Parrot Orchestra, and they would do on weekends two or three sets a night with the disco DJ. So you had a very homogenous crowd. Oh, we yeah. Just well, in addition to that, Mar uh, there was also, Marcia, the stage that flew out of the ceiling. Yes, the stage yeah, I... was suspended above, and that was a huge presentation. We'd be on follow spots and do a presentation to the 1812 Orchestra or New York, New York, or whatever, and amid all the folder, all the stage would drop down, and then stairs would come from the above the catwalk where the dressing room was, and the artist would enter as though they were magically coming in from space. It it was it was quite spectacular. Yeah. Had a built-in soundstage, had a monitor mixing booth that that was in the opposite end of the stage that would go down where we had both a monitor and a front of house engineer. So the front of house mixing booth was part of the catwalk. Jimmy wanted it to be a little bit of everything, which is why we had the Red Parrot Big Band, uh, which was I think sixteen pieces. You said forty; they wouldn't fit in the building. They seemed like forty. They were, uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> and they would do, and people would try and dance to it. And then it would, of course, go into the disco. But he also wanted entertainment. And we would have big-time entertainment there that would do shows. Yes. Um, and he was trying to mix it up uh, and make the people look good, which he did. But when I was doing it, I wanted to go to um, a memory control system so I could control the looks, what it looked like. I would make looks to be played back by the light jockeys. Um, so I went to Kliegel Brothers and they had a performer and they had a performer at some point at Studio 54, but they had come out with a performer too, which could run, you know, up, up to a thousand dimmers, uh, but uh, we didn't have anything close to that. And it had, a gold button and the gold button was ba basically a macro uh it would have 200 cues but there were point cues in between so all these cues the looks were all pre-designed and there was a room look there were several overall room looks uh they were on a submaster, and then you could play the cues out in any order you wanted uh and the sh 
place was really successful and maintained. And we added uh, projections. I think one of those pictures you showed uh, showed screens that flew in. We added lasers at one point. Um, and um, yes, we did some VJing. You know, there. I remember we had because videos, music videos, were just starting to come out in the early '80s as well. Right. And uh, one, of, one of the things that Jimmy Mary was really uh, uh, very forward thinking about, too, in that video, you know, we created those those RP screens, rear projection screens that came down and surrounded the dance floor. I mm -hmm. you know, co-designed this with Ken and um, Jimmy, actually, I had an idea of producing a music video. And so Jimmy said, sure, Jason, go ahead. And so he allowed me to go produce like one of the first music videos that we, we did there projected on the screens around the dancers. It was really exciting. Yeah. And it, it was, um, it was a big place and he, you know, at one point I think Thursday nights were slow and he said, Oh, we don't have enough people here. And I, he said, we need theater people. I said, well, and he said, yeah, just, I, we'll invite them and give them a drink. So I went to all the theaters because I worked in a lot of them and on the state, on the, call board, we said, hey, show up at the uh, Red Parrot and you'll get in for free and get a drink. So all of a sudden, I think it was a Thursday night, the place was packed with theater people and all the chorus kids and everything. And they, of course, would that would make people want to come because it was a fun group that actually knew how to dance. Um, and uh, so it was fun and in fact uh, won a lumen award for it so um, it, did. it did well two to two to jimmy's credit the ice palace 57 also won a lumen award yeah. and i actually have it in the back on my wall and when the red parrot was closing and they were closing down the offices and then i'm sure you remember managers jimmy pisano god rest his soul because ken didn't you also do new jimmy's for him down uh, down in the village, New Jimmy's was ultimately uh, now is called uh, the Stonewall. Now the Stonewall Inn, but it was in the building. It was the first incarnation of the Stonewall Inn's revival. Um, but uh, I was given the lumen from the Ice Palace Fifty Seven because it was hanging in the office of the Red Parrot. I don't know who designed that. Did you do that, Paul? That was through Paul, and it was Chris yeah. Harms. Yep. Yeah, Chris and I did that with the neon yes. sculpture, very, very low to the ceiling and animating the neon sculpture, trying to paint out the ceiling around each piece of neon so it would spread out a little bit, not be such a hard Here it is. line. Uh, Here uh, it is. Be a little less harsh, low ceiling, uh, but... Uh, and mirrors, so it kind of went on ad infinitum with all yeah. that neon. Yeah. But, you know, the thing I talk about, the Red Parrot was wildly successful, and I got a lot of phone calls. Um, I wrote it down here. I just have to look and see. Uh, Jimmy Mary spent $600,000 on lighting. Wow. Uh, that include install, uh, which translates today to $1,900,000 in today's dollars. That was an astronomical sum. Uh and I remember getting calls after it because uh, club owners all over the country said, oh, we, we want you to come light our club. And the first thing I would say is, well, what do you want to spend? And they said, oh, we got a lot of money, so you'll be able to do anything. We, we have between twenty five dollars and $30,000. <laughs> and, and then I would say, well, you know, we spent a half, over a half a million dollars on the Red Parrot. Click.
Yeah. I, I never got another job, nor did I really want to go do a club where I could buy 10 things and make them blink. You know, that wasn't fun. But it, this man was very forward thinking and he was out there. And um, but that was Paul, you probably didn't get anything close to that amount of money in those days. No, no, that's a massive, massive budget. Right. I mean, the, the other thing that was very cool about what, what, how Jimmy um, had us approach this, too, is, you know, he wanted us because of, of theatricality. And, you know, obviously the theatrical, with theatricality comes storytelling. And so I just remember, oh my gosh, for at least the first month of operation, I was there every night till like four in the morning observing what you call the heartbeat of the dance floor, observing the energy of the crowd. And one of the things that we designed into it was a lot of like lighting psychological things. Like, um, you know, before Marsha, you showed a photograph of like the ticket lobby, but you know, that heartbeat of that, uh, that excitement of the audience really kicks in at the velvet rope, doesn't it? In all these clubs mm -hmm. and, and that energy and, and anticipation. Of Here's what you're in. talking about was the entry looking north. And this was right after you had, this could have been taken in front of the cashier's booth, Maurice. Well, booth. The, no, the cashier's booth was out more. You had a picture of that, which was more enclosed. So that, that, that excitement started like before you came through the doors, um, you had a picture of the yeah, cashier's booth. You're looking down at the yeah, far end end of this hallway. Yeah, this is in the yeah, opposite you, direction. These two pictures. That's the coat, that's the coat check at the far end. You Correct. At the before. far end. And then this photograph flips it. You, yeah, you have another picture though of the ticket lobby. So in the uh, ticket lobby, in the ticket lobby, what I could say is you could that hear show, the, that shows the parrot on the wall. Yeah, oh, that one. one. That one. Yes, right. Sir. So that's when you're coming in and you hear the you hear yes, the, the the heartbeat of the music really pounding, but you can't see the dance floor yet, right? So with the architect Sam Lapata, we created this amazing look, and Ken came up with this great idea of you see the lights over the stairs. They're the series of like forty par 56 fixtures, um, each one gelled in a unique color going through the color of the rainbow from ultraviolet to infrared on the spectrum. So as you're getting closer to entering the dance floor, you know, you see the dance floor, the lights are getting hotter. Um, the lights started out, the focus of them chipped up into your eyes. So you couldn't really see much other than the light. You were kind of like audience blinded. And then as you got closer to the dance floor, the focus tilted down lower. And all of a sudden you got past that, that birdcage wire mesh and everything came into focus. And it was, it was really thrilling. And it, and it dropped you off in the middle of the club. Correct. And you can see end. on the far right of this picture, part of the walkway that, that Jason mm -hmm. was just describing. And if you look on the far left of this picture, you can see the stage that seems to be floating. Right. And then right. the go-go right. changes, uh, cages. The go-go yes. changes <laughs> flew in, sure. There was like a, a dry cleaner track that went around that had props. The crew would put props like an airplane flying overhead and all kinds of fun stuff. And there were also four live parrots when you got back into the right. seating area on either side. Um, let me see. We traveled north and west the long distance. So east and west on the club. I mean, north and south was the length of the club. Correct. It was unique because yeah. the actual capacity was very similar to the real capacity because it was one story with like triple wide exit doors on both 57th and 58th Street. So we really could pack a lot of people in through the expanse of that city block. 
and going east to west, there were two big parrot cages that you could stand around and walk in. I mean, I used to help Natalia feed the parrots sometimes when I was there in the daytime teching. There and there was soundproof glass, so the parrots the parrots weren't annoyed by the music. <laughs> well, didn't it was they, sound, it was they advertised that. Didn't they advertise that other entrance as a special club one night as a spoof? Yes. And you yes, entered. Right. Good memory. Remember that? I just, yes, just think about that. And what were you? You know, I I was first working in clubs in San Francisco in the late 70s before I came to New York and worked in clubs. Um, but it, in my first club job in, um, in San Francisco, <laughs> was at the Condor, if anyone knows the famous Condor in San Francisco, which was the home of the famous stripper, Carol Dota. So it is iconic <laughs> in North Beach. So I got, I, you know, I moved to San Francisco. I, I got a job. I took a lighting class in Buffalo when I went to uh, University of uh, New York at Buffalo. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I was looking for work. And I, you know, people are like, you can operate the lights here, you can operate the lights there. So I worked at the Mabuhe Gardens, which is a punk club, and the Condor, which was a strip club. And I learned how to do cosmetic lighting for the strippers because of what the club owners, you know, insisted on insisted on when they when you when you light strippers. So I, I learned how to cosmetically enhance people and make them look sexy and gorgeous and great. But I was also working at um, the punk clubs. Well, I was doing theater. I was also doing theater in San Francisco. But when I moved to New York, um, in addition to working at uh, production arts, cleaning lights, I would work at night at the other clubs, mostly, you know, the rock clubs, which was, you know, I, I worked at CBGB's, but I wasn't the regular there. I, I was the regular at places like um, the Rock Lounge and the Ritz and the Mud Club. And and in that circuit, you know, I was running lights. I didn't design the systems at all. I didn't know who did it. You know, I got hired to, you know, run the lights every night, maintain the systems, change gels, do whatever the bands need, do whatever the dance floor needed, you know, jump up and down and uh, um, climb ladders and trusses and, and then operate the lights until four in the morning and then shut everything down. But, um, but then I got calls, you know, can you fill in here? Can you fill in there? So subsequently, you know, I got calls to work at studio 54 at the end after uh, Steve Robell and, and Ian had been deposed and it was now in Mark, uh, God, what's his Mark Fleischman. Fleischman's hands. So I was, you know, and they, you, you, you go in and they, you didn't get much of a, you know, of a practice run or an intro. It's like, here's the wall of stuff, you know, here's the strobes, here's the, you know, the, the mirror ball, here's the splashing this, here's the, you know, and at that time also, in addition to running lights at these clubs, I frequented a lot of them. Um, so I'd been to Studio 54, you know, and it was the crazy days. So, you know, to, to run lights and to have that energy, if you're the only one running lights all night, you know, you don't, you don't have time to go to the bathroom. You, you know, you're there from 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. till 4 a.m. and you've got to be on. And if you take a break to run to the bathroom, it's close by and you've got two seconds. And, you, you know, so to keep that energy up, you know, there were substances to keep you going all night. And so therefore, in all that stuff, I didn't completely remember. I just remember walls of switches being in the DJ booth, you know, in the at Studio 54, there was a, 
and Xenon. I went, I, I worked at Xenon more, but you had, you know, one of the box, um, uh, uh, bo boxes of the theater was the booth. And so it was very prestigious to be up there and people dressed up and celebrities came up and you were doing lights and, you know, working, working with the DJ and the dance floor uh, at the same time as, as people were coming and, you know, doing Coke right on your console or on your desk or right next to you, or, you know, and there's one, picture you have where I was working at another uh, club uptown called Tracks or Tramps. I can't remember. There were two clubs anyway. And so I, and, and some of the other clubs I would do, you know, I would do the band, I would do the dance floor in between bands, do the next band. And, and one, um, at one of these clubs, Tracks or Tramps, it was the uh, Jim Carroll and Mick Jagger and uh, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones were were performing and uh, and Mick Jagger would come into the booth and <laughs> there I am in the background. He'd come into the booth at, you know while the other bands were on and, and he'd do coke at my feet. He'd kneel down on the floor so nobody'd see him and just do lines of coke at my feet. I'm probably well, we see Anne looking judiciously at her lighting console and yeah, the left of this. <laughs> you know, and like people, I'd have to push people away when I worked at the Rock Lounge. Um, Jean-Michel Basquiat was always coming up, and um, you here's know, another one. I'm, can you tell us which where this is from? Uh, that's probably. I don't remember which club that was. I worked at I worked at all the rock clubs, and you know, people were giving me photos. So this might have been. Um, you know that that might have been the Mud Club, actually. Okay. So, um, but because um, there were well, well, there wasn't that many of us that that could run these systems. You know, I mean, the there were all components, as I as of what you're describing, a wall of controllers. I mean, there was not one console that integrated everything like we no. have in the digital world. There were a gazillion different controllers, each with their own, sometimes with their own protocol or sometimes fixtures that had to have a specific controller that was for well, them. No, but it's like at, at Xenon Studio 54, it was probably, Paul, a lot of your light lab stuff because the, exactly there were levers and switches and, and sliders. And, you know, sometimes you go in there, if, you know, Studio 54, I didn't even know what everything was. I just would hear the music and go, it's time to press this button. And, you know, I'd get lucky. And, you know, or it's time to turn everything off for two seconds and get everybody crazy and then pop everything back on or whatever you do. You know, it's like, it's really about the music and the timing and, and uh, you know, reading the crowd and that kind of thing and just creating excitement. So that was a lot of fun. But in the, in the music clubs, in you know, uh, where, where the bands were, you, you did have a console, you know, it was often a preset console or a matrix console. Remember those matrix? Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. 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 Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly you know it, but um but yeah it was crazy running them so i i often didn't know who designed who designed the clubs at all who designed the lighting systems because i was just like a club kid i was you know probably had just turned i had just turned 21 um and and it was just about three years in the early 80s in San Francisco that I was doing this. And then I had to get out because it just was too much. And also I was doing theater. So I was trying to be a legitimate theater designer 
Um, but it was wild. You know, the, the number of drugs was out, out of control and you needed them to stay up. You know, sometimes they'd say, you know, at four in the morning, they're like, we're staying open another two hours. You're like, okay, you know, you get out of there at, at daylight, you know, and just go home, you know, with the sun in your face. It was, you know, crazy, but, um, you know, thankfully in the club, you know, like, look, it, it, in the club system, Marsha, you and I were probably two of the only females. Maybe, maybe there was one more. I've ne I'd never met. Oh, it. By the eighties, it was pretty much the two of us. Yeah, and, and you came a little bit after. I was already making my exit. Wasn't the there um, <clears throat> a lady by the name of Cat? Cat um, Joy, Joy. And she worked as a tech. She was on crew at Palladium. Okay. Where and she was a tech person. In fact, she does special events to this day, yeah. um, but not in the club the way Ann and I were running lights at right. night doing operations. Yeah. And that might have been later because I, I exited around 1982, 1983. Yeah, Palladium didn't open until 85. So we're talking after you, I guess, had gone to San Francisco or got into your next phase. Yeah, but I didn't do, I, I, I didn't start doing tours until I had a Broadway career, you know, until I was, doing theater are well established and then you know i came back around because in the early 70s in san francisco and i was doing clubs and music venues there and also working as somewhat a roadie for a little while um for for different lighting companies you know the the um the piece de resistance was bill graham's fm productions and they absolutely wouldn't hire me because i was female and that was very, made very clear and there was no bones about it so i came back around after i'd had an established career as a designer um pulled being pulled in through musicians who you know by that time it was opening up for for women but um but yeah the touring didn't happen till till later but i had sewed my crazy club club oats but you know, working in discos was, was a blast. I mean, like, you know, it was it's like, look who's on the dance floor. It's Brooke Shields, you know, Bianca Jagger. It's like, everybody was there. You just, you know, and then you had to excite them. You know, anything that you did controlled the floor and you were only successful if you could keep people dancing and the lights and the music, but the lights really kept people dancing and, you know, it had to thrill and excite them by just the timing of, the blasting special effects that you did. Now, Ann, I know there were DJs who were quote unquote house DJs and ones that we worked with regularly on either specific nights of the week or they were just always there. And then there were others that were guest DJs. Did you find that the rapport you had, even if it's an instant rapport with a guest DJ you're working with for the first time, do you find how that would may or may not have influenced your night, your show and consequently, part of my question about how we make the heartbeat, how we find the magic of the moment, how we create something that takes us to that next level. In a club, I found a lot had to do with the rapport I had with the person making the music at that time. Yeah, I, I uh, often, you know, sometimes I talked to them, sometimes I didn't, sometimes I didn't, but you know, it really, I just like throw it at me, you know, whatever you got, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mirror you. And I had to be really tuned into them. So I'd, I'd, I'd kind of have my hands on the, the stuff because, you know, it was like a hand here, a hand there, a foot there, just, you know, mm -hmm. 
so many, so much stuff to operate. And then I'd have my, you know, ear and eyes sometimes on the DJ. They wouldn't be looking at me. They'd be looking at the dance floor. And then when I'd pick up cues, then I'd look at, you know, I'd have to one eye on them, one eye on the dance floor, hands on the thing, and just kind of work as a conduit to all of it and just kind of be on and, and highly concentrated. And there were certain substances that really helped you be highly concentrated where you were like, I'm ready, you know, and it just the adrenaline, the adrenaline pump, you know, and then when the club owners would come in, you know, Steve Rebell would be standing next to me, you know, you'd be, you, you have to be on, you would have to be on or they'd kick you right out, you know? Uh, and did the uh, DJs tell you what songs they were going to be playing next? No. So you no. didn't know where they were going. Oh, no, no. And that was the fun part of it. That was the fun part of it. It's just like ready, just ready, bam, you know, and just being able to uh, to react instantly to anything and hit it right was such a rush that, you know, you, you, you just, it was so much fun, but that's why you can't, you, you know, one wasn't able to do it for too long because you'd physically entirely burn out because you didn't have any time. The first club that I, that I ever, the bigger club that I ever did lights in was San Francisco. I was hired by the disco star Sylvester. Okay. Sylvester was, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know. Drag queen wasn't quite the word. It was a bit more than that. But it turned out in a downtime for Sylvester, they were the uh, manager of a big nightclub, the Golden Gate Theater, which is now a Broadway touring house in San Francisco. But it was a gigantic nightclub and disco. And so when I, again, when I was looking for work in San Francisco and I'd come and I'd worked at the Condor and the Mubuhe Gardens, that was something, you know. So I went over to get a job. Uh, when they when Golden Gate Theater was opening and I hadn't done a big club like that and Sylvester was the manager and I had to I, I figured I'd get any kind of work. I just needed work. So I was like if I was busing, you know, uh, um, glasses, I would take take the work. I needed it. And they needed somebody to do the lights. And Sylvester was very um you know, intimidating looking, big, gigantic wigs and this giant, you know, amazingly, you know, sparkly outfit. And I went into her office, his office, her office, and said, well, you can do the lights then if you know how to push some buttons. And when I, when I had the first night and I had to do five bands on the dance floor and I was very timid and it was moving a little bit too slow. And, and she got really crazy with me and came up behind me, gave me a gigantic line of coke and said you better do this right now and so i had it i had to do it you know i did what i had to do and then she took my hands and just started pushing them and slamming that you know the console and all the buttons and said don't stop it just keep doing it this way all you know don't stop i don't want you to go to the bathroom you're not doing anything i don't care what you do you, you this is how you have to do it and the adrenaline kind of pumped so i kind of learned how to just keep it moving. I didn't know what I was doing, but then I kind of figured out what was doing what, but I understood the power of the lights and I needed somebody to push me because it's intimidating to slam lights around like that and blast people and make them scream. You know, it, it you have to get over yourself in order to push yourself that far to make, you know, to, to do things that you think would, are probably offensive. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah. It, but in know. that environment, that's exactly what it took to get the reaction that we all look for from the crowd, which is their enthusiasm, their exuberance, which of course feeds you because you've just done something that's made everybody go, ooh, right. and, and accentuated what the DJ is doing. And yeah, Ken, I, I, I never worked in a club regularly where I was sharing a headphone or knew what was going on with a DJ. In fact, the only club I know that did that, the Saint had a jack, a quarter inch jack. And if the lighting person wanted to patch in to the headset cueing uh, port on the mixer, they could, if they wanted to get a preview of what was going on. But I'm with you, Ann. It was the, it was the, the spontaneity of the moment. It was the journey of the music. And as the DJ took you through his journey, you became a part of it. And then I think helped color it for the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And there were guest DJs. I think one night um, at the Rock Lounge, I know Jean-Michel Basquiat used to guest DJ. One time Andy Warhol did guest DJ. It was, and I shared the booth with all these people, you know, it's like just next to them. And you never, sometimes you didn't know who, who was coming up next, you know, and that was always really exciting, but it was really being in with the moment. Well, you know, cool. I, I, in the eighties, I designed in uh, Japan uh, and all over Asia, a lot of clubs. And I remember designing one called the buzz club in Tokyo. And it was the first uh, video bar, a club. So we had a dance floor and we had screens. And at that point, the sensors had to look at all the videos that came in before they could be shown. But this is right. This is probably 88 or so. So videos were sort of new. And we opened this club and it was, we had a lot of energy in the lighting. We had these screens and it was Sam Lopato who did the Red Parrot did it. And opening night comes and all the Japanese come in and they sit down and watch the videos. They didn't know that you were supposed to dance while the <laughs> videos played around you. The owner was freaking out. And at the time, Siegfried and Roy were performing in Tokyo. And since I had done their show for years, I had invited all the ensemble, the chorus, to come to the opening of Buzz Club. And they show up around 10 o'clock when this club is dying. I mean, the owner has spent a fortune. Uh, and I, as the dancers came in, they all sort of pet trickled in at once. I said, you can eat and drink for free all night. Take your coats off and go out and dance right now. <laughs> and they said, okay. And they went out and danced. And that's when the Japanese realized you didn't sit and watch the videos. Nobody had ever done this, that you danced and they were just part of the ambiance in the background. And by the way, the club became wildly successful uh, and lasted, I think, for about 10 years. But the owner was smart enough. He would always invite uh, Western performers or people who knew what it was so the Japanese wouldn't be intimidated. But it was, get that energy. But you know, the music's pounding, the lights are doing, and everyone's sitting down watching television, you know. It was a well, it was so interesting when video came into the clubs because that was, I don't know, maybe that was 80, 81? Yeah, that was early 80s, and definitely. And, um, 
and it, you know, when I remember the TVs being installed in the rock lounge and then at studio 54, there were those, you know, the gigantic monitors. Um, and it, you know, people didn't know what to do because it was like, there were all these cool videos. So then they decided, you know, at the rock lounge and at the Ritz to put separate rooms with most of the monitors so that people can go and drink and, and watch them rather than be on the dance floor and get distracted because it was distracting. You, you, you know, the videos were so creative and there were so many uh, interesting directors that were, you know, and you, it was the first time some of them were seeing their, you know, favorite musicians out of character, you know, acting in these music videos. So, it was very distracting. It, and and it, you're right. It, people did not know quite what to make of it. I remember when Private Eyes opened, there was also much of the same. It had a big empty dance floor because it was all about videos. And there was a VJ, not a DJ. And it was this learning period where you got you. Oh, this is the music as well. It's not just watch a video. Um, you know, it was this this weird period of adjustment, I guess, maybe in some ways how we've made with cell phones. And then I think Crowbar added it as a wrapper yep. around the perimeter as a massively yeah. huge. And, and then in the 80s, Palladium had those huge video arrays that were these two-ton flying arrays that and tilted that had maybe, I don't know, 30 screens per. And that became then a huge feature. And it was part of the light show as well as this is how we would also show a music video. Yeah. So yeah. But, but, but then people were more used to it. Already five years have transpired. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, you know, but but um but disco was a whole other thing. You know, the clubs were, you know, the people that went to the discos generally didn't go to the rock clubs, the people that went to the rock clubs, you'd never see somebody from CBGB's in Studio 54 or the Red Parrot or you know, or Xenon. Um, clubs had their own followings and it was very interesting. And so I had to wear different things when I went to the disco. I couldn't dress the same way I, I would dress when I went to work at CBGB's or whatever. So I had lots of outfits. And when I, I worked at the Roxy for a little while when, when hip hop started and um, people like Grandmaster Flash and, um, and, um, run dnc and africa bambata were starting and so when i'd work in those clubs i remember um one of the uh musicians in grandmaster flash is like you're not going to run the lights like that next to their dj so they gave me outfits to wear and i had you know like clip-on like braids strung with you know ribbon and beads and you know <laughs> fringed outfits and stuff like that and you know and you know a, a feathered headdress at one point. It was like, I love oh, it. Great. I had different costumes for seeing, you know, it's Amazing. like. It was, it was so great. can I ask you guys a question? Like, what do we think about the future of clubs? I think that the whole world has kind of pivoted. You, just like vinyl has made a comeback yet everything is digital so music labels and records aren't the same i think clubs have morphed in a some ways with the festivals and i don't i think i don't know the success rate of new big clubs these days um versus the success rate of some of the large festivals like the south by southwest or ibiza or the ultra fests and 
you know, I don't know. It's a good question to look at in six months or nine months. I mean, there's gigantic dance clubs in, in LA. And in Vegas, too. Oh, yeah. And a well, lot of mega clubs in Vegas. I mean, yes, we're doing huge clubs. Right. Yeah. But don't you think Vegas is a unique animal? Like South Beach is a unique animal. There's clubs down there, but Absolutely. New York and LA, Vegas, you know, those are the big kind of areas. I'm sure Miami, you know, um, but, but it's about the DJ, you know, it's like I did the, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I did the Hollywood Playhouse. I did the architectural lighting actually. Um, and not the dance floor lighting for that designed it. And, but it really the, the, you know, the pinnacle area, the, the focus area was on the DJ booth and that's where all the sets and the effects and everything were, because it's all about the star DJ in, in those types of clubs, in the dance clubs now. And, and you know, the budgets that they spend on those. I think, Marsha, I designed a club in um, called King Moo in Sapporo. You grab a picture there. I think I might have a picture. Anyway, it was... Uh, we did this mega club in a freestanding building in Sapporo uh, that the whole outside of the building was sculpted. So I did exterior lighting that changed color, did everything. I had searchlights on the roof. Uh, we did a dance floor and I put in um, IntelliBeams. I mean, we had, I think, 40 IntelliBeams, which was the first time I had seen automated fixtures. I think this was the late 80s in a, a club. Sorry, I found it. That that was the exterior. of. Wow. I'm going to flip through uh, while you're talking. Ken, I found them. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, go slowly. This was the bar. The other was the interior. Hit a next picture. Uh, that was the dance floor, and they are uh, 2K Xenon searchlights in the floor. Wow. Uh, and then around the edge in the floor was color scrollers with um, 1K PARs and hit hit another picture. And that's sideways. If you turn your head sideways, that's what the ceiling looked like. It was rock. But we automated, we automated the ceiling so it fell down and it came very fast. And when it would get about eight feet over everyone's head, go to the next picture, it would flip over. And on the other side were all um, par heads with uh, um, color faders from Morpheus. And then the ceiling would go back up. And then the ceiling would change wow. angles. Um, and... Then some Japanese company made a Varolite ripoff, so I had those. We had lasers for days, and it was everything that um, a Studio 54, Palladium, the places that did scenery, but this was a total environment with no money spared and lighting for days. Oh, my God. Who did the... the um design the set design it was done by a japanese fellow and they hadn't hired a lighting designer they had the drawings and they had gone to something like osram and said light our club um you know or ushio they gone to ushio and then the uh guy who had worked with me on club said no you need to hire ken 
So they came to New York, all the owners and everything, Jason, myself, and we laid this out. Money was not a problem. We well, there was also an American uh, designer, I think, you know, someone who had been perhaps a former Imagineer or worked theme oh, parks, right. Yeah. right? And so, um, you know, together, you know, we all brainstormed ideas. And one of those pictures, uh, Marsha, that you showed uh, of the dance floor with the rock ceiling, uh, yeah, there was a picture. There was a picture of like this big um, kind of stone god on the side. So we all created this whole mythology about the place. Was it um, this one, Jason? Yes. Yeah, you can kind of see uh, the two eyes in the background. There was another one where you see like the whole face there. But um, this whole place was meant to look like an archaeological dig of this old kind of almost like Indiana Jones temple. And so there was a, the whole queue line after you got through the front door um there was like a whole tunnel with like um lights you know overhead on on strings like you'd have in a dig you know with like bare bare bulbs on um, in cages um and then once you were in the dance floor and you, you this popped you out on the second floor overlooking the dance floor um there, we created the whole mythology of of um a whole kind of almost like indiana jones storyline where they had to sacrifice a virgin every night <laughs> to the, to the can- disco gods and Ken, to your point, you were talking before about how this rig, which I oriented correctly now, flipped right. to become this ceiling, yeah. then would flip back to become this. So here yeah. we see in the red. And the you can ceiling. see the little the little god there on the side. Yes. So there was like there was smoke that came out of his eyes. Okay, so on the light. floor, on the floor of that photo, there's lit squares of color, you know, yeah. on the dance floor. How are you doing those? From the IntelliBeams. Oh, fantastic. And then there were lasers in the eyes of that god on the wall. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and it was the first time I had seen a club that went 100% from the street to the toilets, I got to tell you, to the private dining rooms. There was, it was all of one. And every you know, other than the beer machines, because you know, in uh, in Japan, you know, there's you don't go to the bartender to get a beer; you go to a vending machine. So, uh, and my biggest problem was uh, getting the light bulbs in the vending machine to be a, an attractive color, as opposed to some cold fluorescent uh, in the middle of all this. But other than that, it was all the way with no expense spared. By and including on opening night, he rented a plane, hired, I think, about a hundred models, fifty men, fifty women of the most beautiful people in wow. uh, in Japan, uh, Western models, and so it was an enormous success from day one. Uh, wow. the, the guy promoted it, but now I think we see if you go to the mega clubs in Vegas and all that, you get more to this. Now they, they spend that money, but to do that back in 1989 or something, when we did it, uh, was pretty amazing. Paul and Jason, when you design these clubs, how did you, do you remember how you, um, trained, the people that were to run it or, or the, the, you know, the maintenance people on what was what because running, running it was such a big part of it that, you know, to make it successful, you could have these big systems, but if you had people who really didn't know how to use it or really didn't 
really yeah. push the envelope. It would be a spectacular, but you have that. And, and I we guess- got, We got pretty good at that with, with uh, integrating the, the house crew with our crew for the last couple of weeks of the install. So they would be part of it for the aim and adjust and, uh, and the, all the testing of each of the loads and then what it's gonna look like, what it's gonna look like with smoke and, uh, and how to operate it and why uh, and what to use and what sequence and what use best, what worked best. But we would work with them a lot to try and train them and then turn it over. Yeah. And our yeah. training had to be, it was a theatrical lighting computer. So you, you couldn't walk in and say, well, let's see what this switch does. First of all, you had to figure out how to turn it on and load it. Um, you know, so we had trained. I remember Greg, was it Greg who was uh, our head there for a while? Um, but we, we, yes, we did training in what this yeah. is and how it works. Well, and that's one reason why I was at the Red Parrot every night for at least like the first month. It was probably the first couple months in doing training. And, you know, each, I don't remember exactly how you guys probably remember how many cues could be on each cassette with the legal performer. Um, um, so we had, you know, just like this. Yeah, there were, there were like cue lists so that the operators could pull up cue sequences that they wanted. Ken can tell us exactly. And um, then, wow. you know, there was always um, the, the sort of run list so that we knew, um, you know, the order of things, that it was going to be a disco set, that it was going to be a big band set, that it was going to go into the giant mirror ball flying in and into a Viennese waltz and then back into disco. And so one of the reasons we had, you know, little transitions like the Viennese waltz was so that we could switch cassettes in the, in the performer and get to the disco cassette versus the big band cassette. Wow. And so I did a lot of, lot of training with every operator there. As on, I recall, um, the rows. operators there and the follow spot ops came from a Broadway, off-Broadway background. There were no, they did. I think I was the only one really who was a lighting op who came from the disco push a button get a light background everyone else was theater yeah i remember you know i had worked my one of my first jobs when i came to new york was being on the crew at the 92nd street y kaufman concert hall and i remember bringing some of those people like sylvia yoshioka was there mm -hmm. who later became the house head at, at the golden theater you know so there were a number of like off-broadway electricians we brought up and that was one of the unique things about the red parrot is and you and i experienced clubs that came from a whole different realm of the techies you know right. the, the push a button get a light group and in palladium it just took that experience and then it combined it once again because you needed a real running crew that you didn't need at a place like the parrot where you right. had the hydraulic but ability. If I, we'd have follow spot operators and a monitor mixture that would come in for shows oh what have you got there ken so that is the entire lighting system was there Oh, is oh there my God! I love that yeah. it's in such good condition. That that brochure is in such good condition. Yeah, well, I had to go <laughs> get out, but uh, it's, I love that. What the, I'm just going to read you a blurb here, and then I'll shut up. Uh, the system configures from twenty to one hundred and twenty-five channels, accommodating over five hundred dimmers with two hundred memories. You know. <laughs> 
oh my god you can't you can't couldn't do the first scene of the musical six with that you know anyway. and it was mammoth back then it was like oh my god 200 you know when when most of the installations had light lab and diversitronic strobes you had a rate and intensity control and a speed but i, I think that this, was it. this i don't know what a light lab controller costs thousand dollars back then yeah but this this console was uh probably fifteen eighteen thousand right. dollars yeah well you know it, it was very unique at the time and and back then i think the clubs were a lot about you know i hate to say one-upmanship but in many ways it oh, was that, you were opening yeah. up Club, it had to be better than the ones that existed. Of you were competing with Studio 54 and Xenon. You were competing with yourself in Jimmy's case. He needed to open up something that wasn't going to kill the Red Parrot on 57th Street that was three blocks east, right. but it was going to create a new environment and sure enough had to stand its own when other newer venues like the Palladium opened or mm -hmm. Red Zone or whatever. But what and the lighting DJ was a commodity at that point in time. I mean, Bobby De Silva uh, was at Studio Fifty Four early on, and yes. then uh, Richard Long did the sound system at Studio and did the sound system at at, uh, at the garage, uh, well, at the Paradise Garage, and Bobby also worked Paradise Garage. Well, and then they took him away and brought him to Hanover to open Music Plots, and the owners yeah. kept him because he was treated like a king and uh and and uh and ian and stevie got really angry uh that he wasn't coming back because it wasn't the same club without him I mean, he was yeah. also on the original running crew when the palladium opened yeah yeah and those clubs were so much more um you know, legit in a way because a lot of a lot of the clubs are run by gangsters and owned by gangsters. Is you know, well, none that we did. <laughs> and some of them you were never paid in cash. <laughs> well, and the ones that I worked at, a lot of them where nobody was getting paid or people were getting ripped off. I was always getting paid because of my last name. Yes. So yeah. that was an advantage. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what was the lifespan of these clubs? What five years would be a long run, right? Indeed, yeah. for a lot of them, I would say you're about right. Or in a, the case of a club like the Roxy, it opened up as the Roxy. It did roller disco in the late seventies. Then it, in sometime in the early-ish, mid-80s, it changed to 1018. It had a whole other life. Then it went back as the Roxy in the 90s. So a lot of the spaces were kind of revitalized and in, in incorporated into new environments. Like the Red Parrot became, uh, God, when the Giuliani's took it over, what they call it, Emerald City. Right. But it was all who had the lease, you know, who had the lease. It they was were, who had the lease, exactly. 54 yeah. was only 33 months. Oh, and then Mark Fleischman took it under over. under right. the realm under, of Steve and Ian. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it closed for a little bit. And at and that then, time, I worked at New York, New York, and John Addison, of course, was huge head-to-head -head rival with. Oh Steve. yeah. It was like who could do what more and or better. Um, you know, and 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 I remember back in the '80s, at some point, working for an after-hours club, which name shall remain nameless but i'm sure one that many of you may have heard of and even frequented and i swear you could set your watch 
to Ken's question or point, once a week on Thursday night at 11 o'clock, the same guy would walk in the back door. He'd go to the same spot on the bar. He'd have the same drink and he'd leave with a paper bag and say, thank you. Yep. That, was, that was the club influence. It was there. You knew it was there, but it didn't really affect me in my job. I got paid regardless. I came in, I did my gig, I left. But there was that undercurrent throughout so much of New York back then. Right. But, you know, to go back to what, Ann, you were saying about Sylvester, all the folks that were running these clubs knew the lighting was important. They yeah. knew the music was important. And I think they knew the lighting was as important as the music. Yes. That's why they let us do what we did, because we created business for them, a successful business. If you had a full dance floor, happy customers who spent lots of money at the bar. Yeah. The owners were happy, and the bag man came in every week and got what he wanted, and out he went. And I remember at the Red Parrot in 1980, it was a $20 cover. Again. Yeah, right. What and that was a lot was back then. Yeah, a I lot of money. I remember, you know, that was the fancy club uptown, you know, that um, you couldn't necessarily, you know, Studio 54, you could get in if you were with, you know, like, if celebrities if you were a celebrity you know if you were with an entourage of a celebrity you could you could get in um and i'm sure it's, it's red parrot was the same but um you know there was so much velvet rope stuff that studio 54 if you weren't with somebody you weren't getting in well, but, I, when the red parrot opened and ken you may remember some of the guys at our front door roger peretti they were part of the original crew from 54 right well, I remember when I was Liza Minnelli's lighting designer in the 70s, going to Studio 54, and this is before cell phones, and when we pulled up in the limousine, how did they know it was Liza Minnelli's limousine? It was just another car on 54th Street. And they would open, would open the door, and they, the Red Sea would part, and Liza would get out, and some of us would go in with her. There were thousands on the street begging to get in and we would go into the club and there'd be 12 people right yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. just sobbing yeah. would be sobbing outside right. yeah, so i uh, am going to make a little bit of a left turn segue because you guys have had such amazing interesting careers and gone off in so many more directions beyond disco and i don't want to not touch on them and you know kind of in alphabetical order here ken i'm going to start at the top with you because you've done so many things outside of the clubs and the conversations which have been wonderful but let's just talk for a nanosecond about your broadway career and how you won a tony for chicago what an amazing amazing uh uh show and i'll just throw up a couple of pics of that and if you could maybe just run us through a few stories I've got uh, of that, I've just run through a few of the Chicago picks and I've got Radio City and Dreamgirls and just, I'll let you take the floor. Well, you know, it's, uh, I always started out to be a theatrical designer. I never was scared to do other things, you know? And when I started doing the world of concerts, it wasn't rock and roll. I was lighting designer for Anne Margaret, Shirley MacLaine, Liberace, um, you know, uh, Vegas concert acts. Um, and 
was just kept being asked to do things like doing a club. So I did it and it turned out to be successful. My career always was to do theater and um, I did it successfully and people still hire me. So I guess I'm still successful, but um, I was never afraid to do it because I figured the worst they're going to do is fire you. You know, they're not going to shoot you if you do a bad job. Back then they wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe at the wrong club. But anyway, um, so we we took all that, but it was always interesting way of how do you do it. You know, I put the first moving lights. Uh, that's a that's a painted backdrop uh, that does a lot of things, but it's all done with light. Um, but I was never afraid that, um, I put the first moving lights on Broadway in 1984 on a musical grind. Nobody had ever seen a moving light in a the theater. Um, Bob Dickinson was using them on solid gold and I picked them up for theater. Um, you know, uh, Darren Musser put the first computer on Broadway, a chorus line. I put the second one on for a musical called Side by Side by Sondheim. So it was not being afraid to push the envelope to make the manufacturers step up or if they came up with something to try it to maybe push our envelope a little further and make shows look better or make shows more appealing or economical um you know and that's still going on but you know moving lights now uh you, you, if I didn't put a moving light or two on any show I was doing, I'd be fired probably. So, you know, and, but we're still storytellers. All of that is about storytelling. And uh, isn't that all very much the same when it comes to some of the architectural designs that some of us or all of us have done? You've taken those same points you talk about in Broadway and in stage. And we talked about in disco and you take it into, for example, the New York Aquarium by Paul, uh, the World Financial Center, which Anne did, um, Universal Studios. Uh, well, this goes into theme parks, another topic, but here's 42nd, New 42nd Street Theater, a couple of views of that. And, and my thought, my feeling is we take that same energy and we put that into the architecture as well and hope that it will tell the story and with automation, we've been able to push the envelope of what the manufacturers do. I mean, and when you and I started doing, and Paul, when we started doing automated lighting and architecture, we were working with lighting companies that didn't have our entertainment companies that did not have architectural divisions at that moment. We used actual theatrical fixtures in an architectural application. And then the manufacturers changed. Having them build something that would last, you know, that the, the, the or, or I, I went into architectural lighting because theatrically on a regional theater, your best work is wiped out after 16 weeks. Uh, and your, your architectural work is there for 20 years, 30 years for the life of the building. Um, Indeed. And uh, that, was, that was one of the best parts, creating an emotion and trying to get the, the manufacturers to assist you in that in an architectural way, in a way that glass lenses, permanent lenses, and not color filters that need to be replaced, but stuff that will last, um, and automated controls and automated fixtures that would last without maintenance. Right, that and control systems that could, yeah. that could handle 
And if I might also highlight less is more in a way when you use white light. This is a beautiful example of uh, in Ottawa, I believe it is a Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, and it's so simple, but it's so complicated at the same time. In my opinion, that statement of less is more. And this then is the Liebeskin building we, uh, uh, monument uh, done in Ottawa um, with mostly LED lighting. Here you can see it in the base, which would light this uh, uh, concrete facade, which had pictures of the Holocaust uh, etched into it, uh, into the concrete. It's a, a beautiful project. Well, and then conversely, you use color in, if I might show these uh, prospectus project that you're currently working on, Arches of Harlem, where you've got the same architecture, but two different color schemes in much the same way I showed the different pictures of the uh, uh, the uh, 42nd Street installation, the studio on 42nd Street that you did, Anne. This was to try remember when you were programming this? Well, I, I, you know, I was often outside on a folding chair with a headset to the console, which was inside. We couldn't have the console on the street. And, um, uh, you know, I, people thought I was a vendor or I'd be near the incense seller so that I could hide behind them. But you know, <laughs> it got to be two, three in the morning when everybody left and I was out there by myself. It got a little hairy. I, you know, got threatened a bunch of times. I had... Have, had to have plain clothes police, you know, uh, around me watching me. It was, it was nuts. It was so much fun and so crazy, but. It was great fun. I, I think that was one of the first times that we met. Also, I was working mm -hmm. at the, uh, with Fisher Morant's job. Um, and they had done the, the new 40, the AMC 42nd street theaters. And this was the exit. Well, that was a fun little interaction, you know, that we had done. And I'm going to just kind of flip through some various photographs of some different shows. But as I get to our topic about a heartbeat and what is a heartbeat, one thing that I think I've heard through all of you is there's a passion that's the common thread that runs through all of your work. And it doesn't really matter what the project is as much as the detail of which it's put together, the passion which you put it together, and then the end result the gratitude you get from the way it's appreciated. Is that a correct assumption on my part? I, I think that makes uh, a great sense, you know, and none of this was uh, of what any of us on this page do is thrown together. It is carefully thought out. Uh, every piece of equipment, control, color, it may all be able to mold and change and go along with whatever the uh, environment requires for that moment. But th these are, all of these projects are carefully thought out. There's nothing, there was nothing left to chance. And um, anyway. The devil is in the details. And, and I so agree that sometimes just one little detail that could be unnoticed and overlooked, if it's not, will make a difference in how the consumer will experience that. And I think what we all do is try and create an emotion in the viewer, whether the, uh, the viewers on the dance floor looking at the rest of the club or on the, in the restaurant, looking at the people at the bar, it's analyzing the views. Uh, it's painting pictures. It's, it's creating viewports uh, where you look and you, you feel something. It's like looking at a painting. It has a frame, a focus, a foreground, a background, and you're, you're 
trying to create an emotion in the viewer with that pain. And telling a story. A lot of what we're doing. Yeah, and as Paul was saying, none of us here, you know, no designer is really designing for themselves. We're all designing for our, our target audience and uh, doing a lot of, of homework, a lot of, of analyzing and thought process about what the viewer, what the audience, what the guest experience is and how, in this case, how lighting can impact that. But because you know we don't work in a vacuum, it's our collaboration with uh, our architects, designers, um, you know, our composers. Uh, in the case of disco, it's with with what the DJ is playing and the environment. And it's it's that cl constant collaboration is something that is very special to our industry. Right, and and in addition to um, co the collaboration, it's really understanding our audience and really tuning into them and tuning into even how time of day or time of night is affected in with groups of people what do they need at at 9 p.m what do they need at midnight what do they need at 2 a.m what do they need at 4 a.m um you know how do you get people to go home <laughs> you get people to stay you know all that gets controlled uh you know by the subtleties of what what we do and what we understand from from you know the experience that we have and, and reading the ability to read groups of people, which is very important as a designer anyway. I think technology has given us amazing tools just from the control aspect of what you were describing, Anne. I mean, having worked with systems in architecture where you could literally plan out different programs for different types of times of day and different days of the week and different weeks of the year or a special event. And and the what technology has enabled us to do as creative entities is gone so far beyond the push a button, get a light. Well, you know, Marcia, the other thing is uh, in design, because you can doesn't mean you should. Oh, agreed. Yes. Uh, you know, I look at holiday inns or Ramada inns here in Midtown Manhattan that have blinking LED lights on the facade, and I'm going, of which two don't work or two are stuck in green, um, and you go... Somebody thought this was a good idea, but there was no design in that. What are we? What's the story the Holiday Inn is trying to say or to pull attention? Um, and I think again, we're in the details. You know, you give them all these, you give the client all these things. Part of our job is to show them how to use them to get what what results they want, be, why they came to us in the first place. And I think Paul's architectural work shows that, you know, a lot of what you're doing now, the buildings, interior and exterior can spin around, sing and dance, right? And it's just what are we doing? I don't think I showed this picture, but I happen to love it. It's a, one of Paul's works. I think this is in Boston. Yes, Paul? This is Map Arium. Uh, it's the um, uh, uh, Mary Baker Eddy Library at the First uh, Church of Christ uh, Scientist in Boston. It's an old, it's 1930s um, glass sculpture. You can see the size of the doorway. It's kind of huge. People walk through it and there's an audio track. And it's what the world was like in 1935. And uh, the audio explains how it's changed over time. 
and there's uh, an array of uh, color blast. Originally, they were incandescent lamps, and it just sort of glowed. Uh, and uh, then a, another LED system went in, and then we changed over to color blast. And really, the programming allows them to change it each week <clears throat> and have it be uh, relevant to what's happening in their happening in their world. Nice. And if I can just take a minute and flip up some pictures that we didn't show already, Jason, uh, I've got a bunch of pictures from some shows that you've done and we've dabbled in a lot of theater and uh, I want to circle back around to a couple of the shows you've worked with, not just as a lighting designer, um, but as a production manager. These are a few from Billy Elliot. Now you designed this? Yes, so um, this was a, a, a massive reimagination of Billy Elliot that we did in Mexico. And, you know, as far as storytelling goes and, and tailoring to every audience, you know, our audiences had no idea who Maggie Thatcher was. They didn't understand about, uh, uh, you know, what the life in the pits in Northern England was. So we really crafted the story to really um, hit home with the emotions of our Mexican audiences. This was in a massive theater, like a 2000 seat theater. Um, and uh, we were just, you know, very proud of it. Uh, was nominated for the Mexican version of the Tony for that. Oh, nice. Won the, won the next year for Jesus Christ Superstar Tour. But um, that was really fun. To do. Christopher Rash is another show, yes? No, this was um, a show called Northern Lights. Our, our video ah, designer yeah, on this was a man named Christopher Ash. Ken Billington did the lighting for this. And uh, this was the Philadelphia Zoo coming to us to try to help um, extend their brand and tell their story about uh, their care for not only animals, but humans on our planet. And, and so um, we created a story about, about climate change and care of animals. And, and uh, this was on a lake, a uh, nighttime show. There was a, this 35 foot high polar bear made out of uh, recycled car hoods. Uh, we got this sculpture from Burning Man and uh, we created these icebergs, inflatable icebergs on the lake uh, and Ken did Oh yes, you had mentioned you had mentioned you had done one that was a takeoff yeah. on a burning man. And the last one I have here from you, I think, is Wonderland. I believe you mentioned. Yeah, which also was well. kind of Burning Land inspired. This is playing now this summer at a two thousand seat outdoor amphitheater in a Red Rock Canyon. This is all outdoors. It's a massive stage the size of Radio City, and uh, just massive puppetry. Um, a lot of special effects and, and uh, actually use fireworks and you know, all kinds of stuff. And then I think last on the photos I have from your gigs is Phantasmic Tokyo. Yeah, so Ken and I designed Phantasmic in Disneyland together 30 years ago, uh, this past May. And uh, this was a production of it uh, that I designed at Tokyo Disney Sea, and it takes place on a harbor with the audience 360 degrees around. It's really, really kind of a Excellent. massive scale. Massive. And I, I know that we have got, we've all probably got to wrap up soon. So Yes, uh, I just want to run through a couple of more pictures of some of the gigs that Anne has done because I happen to love your rock and roll touring history. I know we did these few, but Anne has had the pleasure of working with Tom Waits over the years, Katie Lang. She did the Robert Plant and Alison Krauss show. And I don't know if this is your most infamous rock tour, but Pearl Jam, and to say that you were Pearl Jam's LD is a big kudo, and I've always been impressed by that one. Thank you, thank you. I unfortunately have to wrap up soon as well, Marcia. I have to get to. It has, I, we have been on for uh, much longer than I expected, actually. This has been a fantastic conversation, guys. 
I hope our listeners can appreciate the cooperation and how lighting is as integral a part of their experience, whether it's on the dance floor or in a restaurant or at a, a theater production, a theme park, a Broadway show. Um, you know, the lighting really is as important to the success of not only the event or the show itself, but the success that the audience feels. And when you walk out of the theater or your event and you feel satisfied, if you finished your evening and you feel satisfied, then we've done our job. Yay. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what makes me happy. Yes. Well, thank you. I, Thanks, Marcia, for all this. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to help me prep and talk about all of this. I look forward to the next time I can see you all in 3D. Great. Thanks, everyone. It's been Thanks, a delight. Thank you all very, very much. Bye.